Welcome along to the RTE Rugby Podcast. Just over two weeks to go until the Rugby World Cup gets underway in France. I'm Neil Tracy and once again I'm joined by Bernard Jackman and Fiona Coughlin. Also with us this week to make it a full house, first in a while on the RTE Rugby Podcast, is Johnny Holland, head coach of Corcon and columnist with RT Sport, among other gigs. Johnny, nice to see you. We were just talking off air there. You had some some nice visitors to, to last night's training session down in Corcon, the not just the Munster coaching team, but the Munster squad as well. Did a little bit of opposition. A few a few nice options to hold tackle shields, was it? Uh, we did more than hold tackle shields now. There was no tackle shields anyway. Oh no, was... they were they were holding the tackle shields for ye. They weren't holding anything uh, soft anyway. It was fairly uh, fairly hectic. No, it was great. It was a I mean there was a bit of a buzz around the club, even though it was kept quiet, obviously, because you don't want uh, you don't want it to turn into an open training session for them and we have, we obviously have to respect that. But it's a great opportunity for our lads to see like we've spoken all of last year about how how quickly, uh, how fast Munster are training in in session. Like, and um, I've been at those sessions, uh, watching from the sideline, but I was in the middle of the pitch last night, and it's uh, it's definitely a reminder of um how fast the game can be and how big the step up can be at times. But in fairness, for last now they they stepped up and um they were they were blowing, but um I think both sides were were happy enough with with how the the exercise went. So it was great for great for us anyway. Good stuff anyway, and best of luck over the, the next few weeks with pre-season. You've a while to go yet before the, the AIL gets underway. Guys, we'll start with the the actual main news, because we do have news this morning. Billy Vunapola is going to miss England's first World Cup game against Argentina. He's been suspended after his red card against Ireland. He's going to be banned for two games, effectively. It went along the lines, I think, of what most people would have uh, expected. A six-week suspension, down to three for... The usual guilty plea being a good boy at the hearing and then another week off for tackle school, which he was eligible for. Add to that then Owen Farrell from last night. Four game ban. That's going to, to end at a four game ban, uh, which was backdated to include the Ireland game from last week. So he's going to miss the this week's World Cup warm up against Fiji and then the pool games against Argentina and Japan. Um, Birch, I suppose just to come to yourself on that. All in all, two two fair calls. Yeah, I think this is this is what we all expected when Owen Farrell made that head eye contact against Tane Basham, and obviously the, the 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 hype and the and the fury around it came from the the siding commissioners saying it was it was a not wasn't a red and disagreeing. So I think we're probably back to where we started. But obviously, from a player welfare point of view, Owen Farrell has had ten days where he's been completing the spotlight. So that's something more that we need to. To sort out, and I think all we want is consistency. So, Billy Billy Budapola, when we when we saw it, we thought you know it's clear red card around six weeks, and obviously we know the the way the mitigating factors can work, and that's going to be key for me is just that um, as we go through this World Cup, that uh, um, you know there's there's consistency whether it's tier one or tier two um, with incidents and players who who step out line face a punishment, but it's reasonable and it's it's handled quickly. You know what I mean? So I, I don't agree with someone's World Cup. You think about the sympathy for uh for Minicelli, for um uh, uh for Intermac because they're missing the World Cup, and yet when a player has an active foul play, people want him destroyed, you know. Um it's just gotta be um reasonable punishment for for whatever crime uh not crime, whatever uh foul play happens. And for a wider point for, for England, Fiona, like you're looking realistically now. That's that's three red cards in in four games they've had. I know the Freddie Stewart one was overturned, but 
two red cards in a row, three and four games, heading into a World Cup, it's not the level of discipline you really want to be having. Yeah, look, I'm sure it's something that has concerned Bortwick and the way that they go about their training and what they expect on the training pitch that went then goes into a match. But when you're in a match intensity, it brings something else. And it's a hunger and a desire of players, you know, to make the hit first of all, make an impact hit. But these are illegal tackles, so they need to be working on just going lower all the time. And, you know, you can still, head eye, it still, could still happen, even if they're bent down in a legal position and, you know, a player could be falling. But these were illegal from the start. It's, that's why there's no mitigation around them and that they were straight red cards. So I think that's an area that he should have been looking at. And I, I'm sure he is. But, you know, when the, the energy and the emotion comes into a game, players go off and do things sometimes that aren't acceptable and you know the players now have to take that but I just hope that we park this now and we're not talking about Owen Farrell going into these games and into the World Cup that that's parked and hopefully when he does get to play that his discipline is where it should be and likewise all of the English teams and hopefully across the tournament that it, it doesn't become a talking point that we're talking about red cards or you know the bunker system that we're talking about the standard of rugby in the games Yeah and just last point on it then Johnny before we move on to to Ireland uh, one of the teams that kind of cropped up when, when this saga was running on last week was people saying, well, you know, the fact that the red card was overturned, it's after throwing this bunker system up into the air. The whole idea is now in, is now in question. You know, there were a lot of hot takes given out about it. I think the, the fact that the this appeal has kind of looked back and said, well, in reality, it should have been a red card because it was an illegal tackle. It was always an illegal tackle and you can't have mitigation for that the bunker decision was the correct one. Is it, is it good that we've just been able to put a, draw a line in the sand now and say that, you know, this isn't questioning the, the idea of the bunker system. The bunker system actually worked perfectly there. It worked perfectly for the red card on Billy Vunapola on Saturday. There were, what, two pretty quick looks on a replay. At the very least, it's a yellow card. Off you go. Three minutes later, it was upgraded to a red. It all worked fairly smoothly. The bunker system is good. Like, I mean, the, yeah. the first hearing was the issue and people are speaking about like the, you know, how England defended their player is the issue and they, they got him off and they shouldn't be trying to get him off. It's their job to get him off. Like they can, they can respect uh, the tackle height and probably should respect it a small bit more to be fair. But they, as like, it's their job to try and get their player back into the World Cup. Their captain, of course, they're going to do that. The bunker system was right. The hearing was farcical because they let him off. Um, But I think the bunker system is there because they were kind of those, well, maybe we see them as clear red cards now, but like in the heat of the moment, there's a full stadium of people with different different opinions. The bunker system is the right one. If it's a clear red card and no one can see anything other than a red card, no mitigating factors, then give the red card if you can. But like if you're anyway unsure, like they were still speaking about the mitigation in, in like a, a hearing that went on for hours uh, and they were talking about mitigation. So the referee is right to use that bunker system to let someone else decide in a quieter spot whether there's mitigation or not do you know what I mean so that that's the right thing but like coming down hard on Owen Farrell for defending himself or like they were they were probably thinking it's a six a six week ban Um, there's very little mitigation for him in terms of like you know previous bans and stuff like that they were going to go hard for some form of mitigation on the field to try and get the ban reduced I'd say they were as surprised as anyone that he got zero games and like Bernard said it's actually not really worked out in their favour anyway because yeah. he's been dragged through so much now and you know, I got destroyed for a tweet that it was probably worded poorly, but I was saying that like this is a guy that we want at the World Cup. I think we should be saying first, it's a red card, there should be a ban. But then after that, let's not go after the guy. Like, you know, it's it's not fair. And I can, you know, it it's um 
the, the way that the, the whole system has run in the last 10 days or so, and Birch has said it, it's absolutely unfair and on Farrell and everyone around him to be, you know, he's let off or he's back banned again. It's a horrible way for, for that whole thing to have gone. So like for four games, I think everyone would have accepted it, probably from all angles, reluctantly at the start. At least we got there, but geez, the rigmarole was, was uncalled for, you know. Yeah, I just think that, the I said it last week, the whole judicial review process probably needs to be centralised. It's not going to happen for the World Cup, but long-term, that they need to look at that whole system and how it works and and that players aren't put out as kind of, I don't know, neat, like to be butchered around the place, which they certainly were. So obviously the bunker system is going to stay. I think it's going to stay long-term even after the World Cup, but the whole review system has to change and be more consistent. What's yeah. interesting is the, sorry, and the way the, I saw a clip, a news clip of England training and Owen Farrell was obviously the one on it and they were tackling high on a tackle bag and wrapping what might be a ball in reality. And I don't know, is it an old clip or not? If it was an, like if it's a new clip, it's shocking because that's their current habit and you're wondering what are they being coached? If it's an old clip, then fair enough, but it's obviously something that they had instilled as a habit as well and it's going to take a lot of time for that habit to go if they're not really going low in training at the moment. So the clip just kind of... It, it it didn't sit well with me the fact that they were being coached like that, but that may have been before you know the tackle height was really being uh, drilled into like this. But it, it still wasn't a good look, you know. And just to put a pin on it, then Birch, Johnny, and Fiona both just mentioned the what Andy Farrell would have called the media circus around on Farrell last week, and you were writing about that in the the Sunday Independent a, a couple of days ago as well. Just how this whole incident became way more than a world rugby disciplinary hearing and whether it was right, right or right or wrong ultimately in, in large parts it just came down to whether or not people liked Owen Farrell as a, as a person. Yeah and, and it's actually it's weird and even like compared to Johnny Sexton's kind of trials and tribulations with, with Ireland where even at certain periods some Irish rugby fans weren't a big fan of his you know it's the these guys are the most important people in our teams representing our country going put themselves under massive pressure so the Owen Farrells, the Dan Biggers, the Johnny Sextons. Um, Dan Carter is a little bit different because naturally he was probably, um, he wasn't the, the same type of character as those three, right? So I think it's easy not like them, you know what I mean? And a lot of fans tend to take a dislike to them. Um, but the reality is all Owen Farrell or Johnny Sexton are doing is trying to do the best for their team. And, and when they retire, they'll be loved, right? But um, there's very little sympathy for them during the time. And again, it's not let him away with anything. I, I don't I think Owen Farrell should have been punished. But um I think that there's a lot of negativity towards those players that will be will be legends of the game. Um while they play and then afterwards, you know, they're they're loved. And it's a it's a weird scenario. But they're the ones that we pay money on a Saturday, 120 quid for a friendly match to to go see play because they when a team is under pressure, they have in the past and hopefully will in the future, make a play or, or, or step up to try and turn the tide. And, and that's why they're paid big money. And that's why they have 100 odd caps. Or I think going far as 106. Um, and it's just a fascinating one that we don't seem to appreciate them globally. You know, um, And England, obviously, Farrell is probably a little bit worse because he's also attached to Saracens, who mm. for lots of different reasons, but he wasn't the one breaking the cap either. You know what I mean? But uh, for some reason, he's dis he's disliked by a lot of people. And I don't think he does a huge amount wrong. When he when he he's obviously had three bans before, it's his fourth ban, but and when he steps over the line, he has to be punished. But the punishment has to be reasonable as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah no, it's all fair points. Um we'll put a pin in that and we'll 
start focusing on Ireland who are in BRX this week. They're playing Samoa in Bayonne on Saturday night, live on RT2 and RT player and commentary on RT Radio 1 Extra as well. Andy Farrell, guys, he hinted on Saturday night that he probably would have made his mind up on his 33-man squad before this weekend's game. Didn't say whether or not he was going to tell the players before or after, though he said he was still undecided around that. What I am going to do is we're going to come up with with our 33-man squad. I'm going to put some selection calls to you, and we're going to figure out who we're bringing to, to France in a couple of weeks' time. So this is the fun part. Um, I'll I'll go to you first, Johnny. First of all, question, are you going 19 forwards, 14 backs, or 18-15? Or uh, I think with the way it depends on what they're doing at hooker now as well, doesn't it? Like so, I think there's there's a good, a good few moving parts in this, and uh, just to really really sit in the fence. Now, I think like we we don't fully know what's going on, and I think this is the thing I always say: we we'll get on to the outside backs of Keith Earls and Stuart McCluskey and all that. Like I think the the fact that Andy Farrell picked Mac Hansen when no one had a clue what he was up to in training mm. shows that we don't know, you know, and that that's the biggest thing: we don't know what's right. going on with the team. I'll uh, I'll interrupt then. Rather yeah. than rather than trying to get into the mind of Andy Farrell of what you think he will do, yes, put you into into the position of what <laughs> do you do. I but think I think nineteen with, with all the with all the information that we have available to us, yeah. so we're not second guessing anything. What would just be kind of personal personal preference? I think nineteen fourteen for the moment is possibly the way I'd be thinking, but like with with France being you know very close, I don't think it's going to be a massive. A turning point anyway obviously you want people within the group so I, I yeah i think you'll go 1914 for now um but it's and if, uh, and if you're do, if you're doing that then are you going just to to make it quicker are you going three of each in the front row uh three of each yeah yeah like i, I actually don't know the the combinations i know but the uh you probably yeah you are i think that's an attritional position even when you're playing you know you're playing against tonga uh, I, I do think that's uh, something that I'd be more comfortable with as a coach having cover in those positions I think is very important especially for training and having fellas uh, banged up and stuff you're going to have to have full squads going against each other as well so I, I think so yeah Fiona uh, in terms of those positions in the in the front row um, if you're taking three tight head props I think are we fairly safe in saying Tyke Furlong Tom O'Toole Finlay Bealham yeah then yeah. at loose heads Dan Sheehan, we're presuming uh, for the sake of the for the sake of this, we're presuming he's going to be fit to play, fit to play some part. I presume we're bringing him if he's able to play one pool game at least. Are we? Yeah, hundred percent. Like I yeah. suppose we won't know the injury until uh, Thursday how bad it is. But like even if he gets back for the Scotland game, that's seven weeks post when the injury happens. So you would hope that if he can make it for back for that, even quarter final, the way he plays when he's on form, I think he's vital to Ireland. So um a big call to make. But yeah, you're bringing Sheehan, Herring and Keller. Um and obviously Stewart is there and has done it did a fine job when he came on against Italy, but that he's there in the waiting if Sheehan doesn't make it, but you really would hope for Ireland that Sheehan makes it through. Um and then Loosehead, Porter, Healy and Kilcoyne. Um, I know Kilcoyne had an injury didn't say it was how bad it was but hopefully he might feature this weekend Samoa but I think the impact that he brings off the pitch as well as on the pitch um, that he'll go but I'm similar I'm with the 1914 split but I think that's because what Prendergast and McCarthy have brought to the party they've come through on, on what the coaches have seen in them and the impact that they can make that that's why I would go 1914 Okay, so we've nine front rows there. Tyke Furlong, Tom O'Toole, Finlay Bealham, Andrew Porter, Keane Healy, Dave Kilcoyne, 
Dan Sheehan, Ronan Keller, Rob Herring. Are we in agreement on those, Birch? Any any yeah. changes to those nine? No. Okay, so we've settled on our front rows. Um, if, by the way, Birch, are you going 1914, Birch? Yeah, I'm going 1914, yeah. So would I be safe in saying, guys, that all second rows and back rows currently in that group would be in that 19, that group of 19? Yes. Yeah, I think the, the, the casualties are going to be... Um... Obviously, the in the in the back line, uh, leave out yeah, Jeremy Lockman and, and Short are gone, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but Joe McCarthy and Prendergast and Baird go, yeah, for me. Um, and then obviously, it's three nines who are in, three tens who are in, and this is where it gets tight. Uh, I think, yeah. I think McCluskey loses out in a 14 in a 1914 split, which is a big call. But obviously, you bring Robbie Bundy and Gary, and then your back three is Hugo Mack, James Lowe, and Jimmy O'Brien. So Frawley misses out as well for me. So, yeah, and Stockdale misses out. That's how I see it. So, Earl, so Earls is the one that gets in. Earls is in, sorry. Earls is in. But, uh, yeah, Earls is in, but um, Stockdale, McCluskey and Frawley miss out for me. Johnny? I am in full agreement with that because I think it's all hinged on McCluskey and, and Earlsy for the last week or so, hasn't it? And then he, he did a somersault to score and everyone's like, he's in. Uh, but I think, like, you know, when I've been thinking about this, the, the combinations of it, um, when you look at your centre, is you've got Bundyaki, Robbie Henshaw, both play twelve. Um, Robbie Hen, well, all three of them can probably play thirteen with Gary Ringrose. So you've got your centres covered, and then because you've got two twelves, um, McCluskey can't go as a twelve when you've got Jimmy O'Brien and possibly Keeler as they can play thirteen. Depending, I'd say, depending on the physicality of that opposition. So like, you've Jack, you've Jack, you've Jack Crowley who had a pinch can go twelve as well. Absolutely. So like, I think. It, when you get to choose which games you use them for, you can go with the weaker games. Jack Crowley can, of course, play 12. Uh, Earlsy, Jimmy O'Brien can, of course, play 13. But all of a sudden, if you're backed into a corner, South Africa, Scotland, games like that, and you're like, all oh, right, we've got one of those players to play out of position when they might not be, uh, they might be able to play around, but like, you know, in the physicality of it for the 80 minutes, that's where I think it can get a bit sticky, you know. So uh, they can play in those positions, but when you're playing tier one, must win backs against the wall that's where I might get hard but I do think um, you're going to risk something so I think risking uh, losing a centre and bringing Erzy in the back three and covering the centre as well I think that's where I'd be going with it Fiona? And just, yeah no, I fully agree with that selection and just because we're so close to France that if an injury happens one week McCluskey goes up, like if an injury happens to a centre McCluskey flies over he's been in training the whole time he knows the system's like you know he can step in there so I think that makes the selection Kind of easier for um Farrell to make. Yeah, I call, I call, yeah. You, you you call someone up there there by lunchtime. Yeah, I I, I don't know the 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 laws surrounding this. So someone has to fully drop out before you bring them over. Yes. That's, yeah, that's where it can become a little bit tricky because you're hoping someone pulls through a training session. They're on the cusp of it. It's very harsh to send them home as well. So like, if it's a clear cut injury, easy. If it's a if they're banged up and they're possibly making the game a possibility to send them home to get someone over there so that's where I think the difficulty might be with being close to France if it's a clear cut injury it's easier if it's not you're, it's a very hard coaching call you know that was very easy all things considered <laughs> I was expecting a lot of a lot of pushing and shoving just to it, just to focus in on one player and you kind of we kind of hinted at it there Birch but like uh, in in our selection here we'll say if Stuart McCluskey is to to be losing out it's hard to think of a player more unlucky to miss out on a selection in in World Cups down the, the last few years where you look at how 
like if Ireland did have, you know, Robbie Henshaw, Bundyaki, but pick up injuries first thing tomorrow morning, you actually wouldn't blink. You wouldn't be remotely worried about putting Stuart McCluskey into into the centre for a big test match like Ireland did back in the Autumn Nation series. Essentially didn't put a foot wrong whatsoever, but it is just, it's a versatility issue is the reason that he ends up getting squeezed out. Yeah, he, he's definitely will be the, will be the most unlucky in a, in a long, long time. Um, but I also, I think, if you like, Farrell has done a very good job in that we we've broken down the numbers. Now we're down to five more to be cut. But realistically, it's there's not many people there who would feel massively unlucky. Like Kieran Frawley, he didn't get the opportunities last year to play. Um, Jacob Stockdale, class player, but his, his form has been mixed and obviously injuries. So he came back in against Italy, but he probably knew that he was behind. Um, you know, and the ones who got cut last week. Realistically, it wasn't a surprise. So Farrell has, has done a, a great job of actually giving lots of people game time over over the last four years. But I think it's pretty clear who his top 34 are. You know what I mean? And obviously, um, the challenge for him now is 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 if he can fit McCluskey in, which we don't think he can. But very, very hard on McCluskey because of what he's done when he's had the opportunities for Ireland. Obviously, he hasn't had a huge amount of opportunities over the years because of the competition there. But when he's played, he's been very reliable. But like Gary can play winger as well if, if you're stuck. Uh, just that just being a one a one position player in this back line is is probably going to cost them, you know. Um and even even look at Connor Murray, like he, he has a goal kicking element if you need to, you know, they're, they're trying to be uh, yesterday at training the, the scrum halves were thrown into the line out. Like they're they're trying to make him as versatile as possible. Um, to be able to cover as many options, and Stewart just doesn't cover as enough options. Plus, like you know, Jack Crowley uh, can do can do the job there. Um, Johnny potentially could do a job if you're stuck during a game. You know, if Ross comes on, etc. But you have then obviously Robbie and Bundy who are probably ahead of him as a twelve. I think that's the problem. A on the versatility actually, it's just something that popped into my head just as you spoke, and Johnny comes into the a coach being prepared for, for all eventualities. We've kind of seen the the team sheet just before kickoff against England and Italy. And obviously it came up during the Six Nations where you have your, your front row designations of who's listed down to be able to cover what spots. And I did find it quite interesting that for both the Italy and England game, uh, of Ireland's six front rows in their, in their match day 23, four of those players were, were able to cover two or three spots in the front row. So there was, there was basically no scenario where Ireland would have to go down to, to 13 players like like Italy did a couple of years ago in, in the Six Nations, where for the Italy game, for example, there two, a few weeks ago, you had Dave Kilcoyne was listed as an option at tight head and at hooker. You had Tom O'Toole was also listed as an option at loose head. Now, you'd still, you'd still have someone like Tyke Furlong who's just listed as a tight head, but in comparison to England at the weekend, Ireland had a lot more options to be able to switch back and forth across the front row. And it just shows, like as Birch was saying, that the tiny little bits of versatility, the 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 in case of emergency break glass options that Ireland have, they are planning for all eventualities. They are, but I think I think it might just be a kind of a byproduct of the way they're picking their players anyway. They're all quite athletic, you know, for the most part. 
like if you look at the back five, like they'd all swap positions as they want, you know. So it just I think it is going into the front row small as well. But also on that law, I think you you've had to go that way or else you're going to like it, it's no nothing to do with your own fault and you're losing a player. So I think you've had to kind of train fellas up. Obviously, they like Burke said, they're getting fellas thrown into the lineup and stuff. So it's if they weren't able to be versatile enough before, they're trained to be versatile now. You have to, or you're just putting yourself under massive amounts of pressure without any forward thinking, you know. So it's very interesting actually looking at the amount of players that can play in multiple positions uh, and the amount of people that can get away with it, like Ty Furlong is so strong and one that, you know, you just keep them there. Um, but it, it's obviously their um, philosophy at the moment that they're all able to do multiple things. And when you can do that, you have to learn the game from different positions as well. So on attack, they're looking like they're flowing in that way because they probably can see the game from a couple of different roles, which is, is hugely important to to get the connections that Ireland seem to have at the moment. Here's, here's a question for, for, for people. If Dan Sheen is six, seven weeks, right, so back for the Scotland game, and if Rowan Keller, I think this, if Rowan Keller was fifth, I think it's less complicated. But say Rowan, say Rowan's not back till South Africa, right? Okay. Uh, and, and I do want to look after him and not put any pressure on him. There may be an argument, and this one, well, I'm hypothesizing here, but there may be an argument to bring a fourth hooker and take take out a Joe McCarthy, a Ryan Bear, a Keen Prendergast, purely to get you through. And obviously, Keen Healy can can hook, or Dave Kilcoyne can hook against Romania and Tonga if you're if you're stuck. But uh, I, I I genuinely believe Kelleher and Dan Sheen, particularly Sheen is absolutely key to us, you know, uh, doing something. I would say, I, I would argue both of them actually uh, could be together. So that's something that obviously mightn't have been, no matter what long-term planning they had, uh, they might have thought about that. But the reality is facing them um, quite quickly on Monday uh, that they're going to have to make a decision on that. Uh, and I actually would be in favour of of doing that, to be honest, because I think, you know, you want fellas who can help you win uh, win a quarter final or, or or beat Scotland, and those two, for me, would be better being in the match day twenty three and make you know someone like Ty Byrne or Hendo play maybe more minutes than you would have liked and take that risk. But um, yeah, it's it'll be it's all depends on how bad Keller is. To be fair, who gets dropped then? That's what I'm saying. Uh, it's probably Keane to be honest. Maybe I think Keane Prendy. I think McCarthy has McCarthy's shown that. He'd be a lovely option against Tonga and potentially off the bench against South Africa. Um, uh, I think in the back row we could cover with Tyburn at six. Um, I think Baird as well has that X factor off the bench. Uh, yeah, so I, I'd be very very hard. Um, but I, I would say probably Keane would be the one who drops out for me if they go four hookers. I think you're right as well because it's so they're so well covered in that back five because yeah. of the versatility. Uh, Neil, you said it was very easy because Birch just rattled it off. But I think like we're going to get some shock uh, at some stage. I I don't know. Is it going to be that easy when he names it on Monday? Because they are like they seem to be overly covered in in those areas. Even though all those guys deserve to go, but the other one is like, you know, are we going to get a shock at out half? Like there's, I'm not sure what they think of Ross Burns' form at the moment as well. And like he doesn't seem to be running. It, it's hard to say. He's had some unbelievably good passes for tries, but then when you look at getting into those areas, I'm not sure if he's running the game in a, in a similar way. So, like, there could be someone come out of that squad where we've just decided they're in very quickly, but there could be a lot more thinking going on behind the scenes there. And I think uh, if you're trying to squeeze a hooker in, then, yeah, one of those guys because he could easily go. Kim Prendergast would be uh, unfortunate as well, but I could see it being like, oh, geez, he deserved it. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, and there could be someone from the back line that gets... Um, 
it's, it's not a shoe in if you know what I mean. Just back to the Rossburn, just listening to Mike Cat when he was saying that Rossburn plays with authority and that Crowley is still learning his trade. That just leads me to think that Ross is still slightly there in front of Crowley, that they feel that he can probably control that game just a little bit more at the moment, whereas Jack is getting there and, you know, he'll... I actually agree, but I think it's on past form. If you look at the weekend, I don't think he did it as much at the weekend. I think there's a lot of credit in the bank going back to, was it the November before? I think there's some credit in the bank in terms of that authority, but I think recently it's been a lot more level than than that. But I get it, you're inside in the cauldron of a World Cup in France. You know, it, I think those that kind of nature will step up again. And I think Ross Byrne has had enough to show that he can do it. I just think with the pace that they play the game and the, the interplays around midfield, I wasn't sure if he was as up to speed uh, as what we've seen. I know like Johnny Sexton, they'll say he's older and slower, but he's not when you look at how he how he runs the game. He doesn't miss a beat, you know, so um, he gets himself into the right position, speed or not. Uh, I just wonder what they're thinking about the last performance as well, you know. Certainly older, not slower. On the the 29-10 against England at the weekend, um, again, it was described, clunky was the word used to describe it again uh, at times. But I think if you're looking for positives, Birch, the back three, James Lowe, Mac Hansen, Hugo Keenan, quite interesting to see that it was the two wings and fullback that led the carries chart for Ireland as well. Where if you think about a lot of games, like you think of a game against England, you are probably assuming it's a big second row or it's your back rows who are going to be leading the charge with all these carries. But when you look at how well Ireland did, once the game broke up a little bit, when when England kicked a little bit too long and Ireland started to move the ball wide, that's where they really, really caused them a lot of trouble. And it probably gives you a, a decent bit of faith and a decent bit of a bit of a, a safety net that if a game does become disjointed, Ireland are actually looking more and more comfortable in those situations compared to in, in the structured play. Yeah, and look, we've been very good in both, but the way England kicked long and on and the fact that our line-out wasn't as productive as normal. We 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 pretty much um were were limited to ball off off counter attack opportunities and, and unstructured get into unstructured shape with our structures within that. And yeah, I thought it was a brilliant outing for for Keenan, Mac Hansen and, and James Lowe. And we have built up a lot of confidence in in um in our in our play in the backfield. I thought our coverage was phenomenal watching keep being at the ground and, and watching Hugo Keenan. He made a lot of England's kicking look very average. Um, but mainly because of his ability to read where the kick is going to go and come from. And he's already in motion. And then obviously um, he was normally able to beat that first defender, uh, open up a two-sided attack because he tends to drift laterally for a while um, just to get a little bit of space. And obviously Ireland are very comfortable at hurting teams from there. So it was positive. Uh, you know, England obviously had a strategy not to to kick to Ireland, sorry, not to kick it off um, because they're afraid of Ireland's line-out. But... I'd say retrospectively they would have preferred to kick it off and have a have a go at getting up in the air, which they did quite well. And and obviously Ireland are, are still a little bit loose around that mall, um, that mall build. So, uh, yeah, they were they were really good, really good. And and um, they are they all have different uh, strengths, but they're probably our our game is still quite programmed. But they give us an X factor if you get me um uh in the backfield and. Uh, Farrell would be and Cat would be absolutely delighted with them. Fiona, the Birch kind of alluded to it there. Obviously, back three and the the loose unstructured play was quite good. But 
plenty of issues around the lineout and plenty of different issues around the lineout where there were things like there were just a couple of miscommunications around throwing. Dan Sheehan threw one over the a couple over the top. There was Rob Herring throwing a crooked one five meters out, which is really, really like that's about as frustrating a position to throw a crooked line out as you can have. The times when Ireland got into a mall position just didn't really get it working and didn't really get it blowing through England. And then you also have the the likes of those obstruction penalties cropping up again after having two of them against Italy, having another one this week. And this also just being an issue that's run on for for the last couple of years. This is probably the the main area in the Irish team to to put the microscope on at the moment. Would I be right in saying? Yeah, I think as I said at the weekend, Paul O'Connell will be very frustrated with some of those as well. Um, you know, England did a good job at times getting up, putting Ireland under pressure, that put the hookers throw under pressure, but uh, O'Connell would expect more from them. And we've seen these penalties around building that mall, you know, obstructing at the front. We saw it in the Six Nations, we saw it against Italy. So it's consistent theme in Ireland. So, you know, in some ways it's an eagerness to try and block out the defence getting in to try and sack you or getting in on the ball. But, um, you know, they have to be really conscious of that because the referees are hot on it. And um, Ireland used their line out, as Bert said, to attack, to launch off so often. And it's been so successful for them. And we saw in the game, even when they did get good quality line out, how they got into their multi-phase and we scored a try off one. So, you know, they have time to work on it. I said they're looking to peak for, what is it, five weeks for that South Africa game, four and a half weeks for that South Africa game. That's when they're looking to peak. So they still have a huge amount of time to to tidy that up. Um, and I'm sure it'll be a focus. You know, you can't focus on everything every week in preseason. They'll have been looking to get their overall and general shape in, in, in good too, and that they did. Um, and the forwards, their, their rocking has been outstanding. So I'm sure they'll focus a little bit more in the coming weeks on the line out. Yeah. As Fiona said, they're actually, Johnny, the rocking outstanding. I mean, the... The numbers were were quite stark, actually, just on how good Ireland's rocking were, particularly early on in the game. There was a 27 minutes in. I marked it down when I was looking back on it a few days ago. 27 minutes in, a stat popped up on the screen uh, comparing the rock speeds of the two sides. Ireland's rock speed, 71% of their of their uh, rock ball was in that one to three second mark in the opening 27 minutes. So the opening half hour, essentially Uh, 24% was in the three to second bracket and just 5% was six seconds and over compare it to England. 40% of their rock ball in that opening half hour was in the, the one to three mark. It did level out a little bit. Ireland's fell down into, I think about 65% in the one to three second mark, which is still pretty good overall. It has to be said. It's unreal, and it's when you look at some of the like when you look at Pete just ghosting through on a, a short little tip pass. Uh, it's just it's not a difficult play to read, but it's just the the, the pace that they're going at from counter attack, moving the opposition, and then when they get into their structures, there's so many different like options, and they actually are all connected at the line. So it, it's very hard to read, and then you put a a very fast rock on top of that. The defense knows what you're doing, but like there's a fella blowing. Like I think it was Will Short missed. Um, Peter Romani going through that line. That's the most simple line of all time to, de- to defend. You know what he's doing, but he just wasn't in position early enough to get his eyes up. There was a good few pictures of, of England having to check. They were all looking in because they hadn't a chance to get into the line, look in, and then look up and look back in. They didn't have a chance to scan that. So like the, the rock speed is phenomenal. But as well, I think, you know, people are talking about Ireland being clunky, and I think we're, we're yeah, it's a small bit, you know, clunky compared to before. But like every other team is in pre-season at the moment that we're saying it's going to come good. Yet Ireland are clunky. I think like New Zealand looked like they're really flowing at the moment and possibly less clunky. Well, definitely less clunky than Ireland in the way they're playing. 
but the games have probably made them so that it was a rugby championship. It was a small bit more competitive. Ireland are building up and I don't expect it to see us clunky against South Africa, you know what I mean? But we're kind of holding them to a different standard at the moment, I think. Um, and there are issues in the line-out. I think that double banking penalty, the blocking in the front of the line-out, I can't understand how they're still doing it because teams are still doing it, but they're giving it a little bit of breathing space at the front so they're not going to get pinged. Ireland seem to be going way too far and it's like a naivety that we don't see in any other part of their game, so I can't really understand how they're allowing it to happen. Um, but other than that, like the, the the attack and the way it's connected and the speed of that rock, it's just so hard to defend. And I think my cat said something around their attack and when it when it's flowing it's very very hard to defend and they're the reasons why but people don't look at attack coaches as big experts in the ruck but if you don't have a ruck you don't have an attack you know so it's uh it's no surprise that it is so quick the to, to go back on that obstruction at the the mall the double banking as you were saying and it, what what i just find bizarre about it is it's it seems to be an issue around the entire irish rugby system where so Ireland gave away a penalty at the weekend, two against Italy. And obviously it's been in our mind. When we see it now, it's in our minds that, oh, it's happened again. And I went back yesterday just to have a look and see how often it was happening. Bizarrely, Ireland themselves weren't actually penalised for it once during the Six Nations. But the issue is that over the last few months, we're seeing Leinster, Munster, Ulster, Connacht regularly penalised for this offence as well and it just seems to be Irish teams that are getting penalised for it so it just seems to be something that's that's Im- embedded in the system but it but it is just bizarre how this penalty is just creeped into the game of it seems a lot of Irish players over this period of time but yeah but it often takes a while to, to creep in in terms of actually getting penalised for it but you can be sure that opposition coaches are seeing yeah. it so the Irish mall because we're not, none of our packs are massive men. We have to build it well at the start, um, and getting that body just behind the catcher is a really effective way. If you can get that body in there and not be penalised, it's very, very hard for the opposition to get their hands through. And then it's a pushing competition, and obviously with with our ability to to shear off at the right time, we have been successful at, at converting those in. But then what happens is as you build up that coaches start to send clips to referees and it takes a little while for it to be actually penalised on the field. So, look at Paul, only something they worked on. I thought Atosia was very smart. He actually pulled the Irish body in there so make it even more obvious. So, again, that's something that they'll have to do at training is to, like, stay just on the edge of the law but be able to stay strong so the opposition can't manipulate you either. But the reward is, the reward is massive. You get him in there and not get pinged your mall is going to be effective. Um, and I think Ireland probably, I wouldn't be surprised this weekend if we if we play away from the mall a, a bit more because we're very good at, at, at those breakout plays, whether it's Josh van der Fleer or, or whether it's Dan Sheen or, or whatever, getting into that 10 channel and just getting into our game because at the moment, the risk of of being penalised there, it's a, it's a it doesn't matter against England or, 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 or Samoa, but um, in a World Cup, effectively, your ability to convert one of those um, into into points, maybe the winning of, or losing of a of a game, and I think Ireland will want to get uh, perfect this, uh, get it right, but maybe not again have another couple of games where it's in referee's mind that we're illegal there. Yeah, it's funny just how like perception is reality in so many of these things. You were saying like Maro Atoji actually pulling Irish players into place to to create that picture as well and and reinforce it. Um, on England, Fiona. Um, we spoke about it last week how their attacks had looked 
fairly toothless over these these last few weeks and even in the Six Nations as well. But they seem to be getting worse week on week. Like we're talking about an a twenty nine ten win against England from an Irish point of view, and we're we're put picking holes left, right, and centre of it. A nineteen point win against England, which never looked in any doubt from the opening whistle. Uh it's 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 incredible just how how little England offer in attack. I don't know if they're getting any worse. I think Ireland were just better than Wales were, and um, so probably made it look <laughs> the fact that you know we spoke about the back three fielding the ball well and and marshalling that backfield, but you know the fact that they haven't brought any sort of plan B, it's that they rely so much on that kick. But I am cognizant of the fact for Ireland's first two years with Andy Farrell in charge and Mike Cash, we questioned what they were doing and we didn't see anything that they were doing. And then certainly it just clicked in that England game in 2021. But just because Borthwick isn't in that length of time, you know, he's only had the Six Nations. Also, the way he coached that club was that kick game that won them the Premiership, that that's what they revert back to. I don't think they've had consistency in their players to get to know each other enough or how they play with each other. Um, that, that, that'll all run against them if he is trying to implement some attacking shape that we haven't seen yet. But, you know, it's going to be tough for them. They've their two toughest games in Argentina and Japan in the pool stages first up. So I just don't know how it's going to kick. And now you're missing Farrell and Vernapola, the one number eight that he's named in his squad. So um, it's tough. I think it's tough days for England ahead and particularly that Argentina game. Like Michael Cech is going to have a, them primed, Argentina primed to go and target that game for the win because it's it's there for the taking. Would you still ultimately expect them to get out of that pool though? I mean it it if I Argentina probably looked favourites for, for that opening game, but are Japan at the level they were at a few no, years? No, I don't think Japan are playing as well as they did four years ago in the Legion to when they beat us in, in that World Cup. So yeah look I, I do think they'll they'll probably get one win. But again it, it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't don't deserve to get to a quarter final when you look at the shape of the pools but that's that's just the way it is and um, because they were done so early but yeah they're atrocious to watch um potentially then it could be for England they could end up in a quarter final against their old pal Eddie Jones with Australian uh Birch, he's had a he's had an interesting week fresh off the back of uh unloading virtual uppercuts at the the journalists uh when they had their send off there last week in just a pretty incredible video, if anybody can go look at it. Uh, to to roping in Steve, his old mate Steve Hansen for a for a dig out for the World Cup. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And um, Dan Cole's reaction to, to that news was <laughs> was hilarious, very honest and open. Um, but wasn't impressed with with Steve Hansen. And uh, yeah, Eddie, look at apparently it's unpaid, but um, for a week, and they are good good pals. Eddie has a lot of pals, friends actually, who are you know in the coaching fraternity who who enjoys company and uh, understand um, he is what he is and and there's an alter ego there. But I think, um, yeah, when, if you remember when he took over from Dave Rennie, one of the reasons the the CEO of Australia or of the Australian Rugby Union said they wanted Eddie was they they were losing the battle for column inches in the New Zealand media and particularly NRL. That he was someone, the personality, being an Australian, um, that he could actually get them more coverage in the in the press. But I think now it's not the right type of coverage. I mean, okay, you know, we all enjoy looking at that. It's a bit of a, a sideshow, it's a bit of a circus, but is it really good for rugby union in Australia? I'm not sure. It obviously if they can go have a good World Cup and and even though it's a it's a controversial squad he's picked, 
Um, there's a lot of talent in there. Like there's a lot of youngsters in that group who are who are very very talented. Um, but he's made some massive calls, and um, it reminds me. I remember Wayne Smith, uh, the former All Black coach, told a story. I think it was 2006. He he started playing around with his flat back line, and um, it didn't work at the start. Okay, and uh, so basically the old back lines used to be at an angle back towards the corner flag in terms of depth, and he he thought, oh, look, we got to play on top of team. So. He started to play around with it with uh, with the All Blacks, and it, it wasn't working instantly. And at a press conference before Australia played the All Blacks, Eddie Jones was asked about. It. He said, "Look at my, you know, Wayne Smith doesn't have a clue. I tried this with Rambic back in '97. You know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, and he doesn't have the brains to to see it. So yeah, advantage us, whatever. And uh, so about two years later, Australia Australia were playing the All Blacks, and they were on a a bit of a bad run." And uh, the day Wayne, Wayne Smith's uh, flat back line did work, did work and started to come fruition. And Wayne Smith was asked the day before they played Australia, uh, what do you think of Eddie Jones or whatever? And he said, Oh, look at you know, this play by numbers, uh, structured rugby doesn't work, you know, we've seen it before, or whatever. And um, next day, New Zealand beat Australia, and he goes into the postmaster function, he's actually feeling guilty, he's feeling guilty. And uh, Eddie comes up to him. Taps his glass and says, "Mate, it's all a game. It's all a game. You know what I mean." And he's still playing the game. He's still playing the game. It's just you'd wonder, is it coming to the end? You'd wonder, is it coming to the end? And as he lost, as he lost uh, the sense of what's how far do you push it? Um, but look at the next six, seven weeks is going to tell a lot. The speed at which Johnny, like the speed, uh, the speed at which he's burning through assistance, like it was a major issue for. However long he was a, however long he was at England, there's a, a long list of assistant coaches who came in and left, and you know he's hardly in the door. A couple of weeks out from a World Cup, and one of his assistants is leaving, and obviously that's what inspires him going on the offensive at the journalists on on was it Thursday or Friday just to to spin the narrative his own way. But it's ultimately you can only do that so much, and obviously he's he's a smart man. He knows full well that realistically all he needs to do is get to a semi-final and put up a respectable showing there and he can mark that off as a solid World Cup outing for Australia because as he said in his own words nobody gives us a chance everyone thinks we're going to lose Absolutely and Australia are going to be in a very good position after this World Cup I don't know how they're going to go they might end up shocking it and winning a quarter-final and if they do they're in such a good position for that next four-year cycle you know and he could be the creator of that and all the rest of it. But yeah, no, you, you don't like to see like when someone has that many assistants leaving, there's obviously something going on, but like he's, uh, I would say that he demands so much out of people and any sharp tongue on top of that. So when the pressure comes on and he says the wrong thing, it, it's probably going to get on you and people end up leaving. But like, I think funnily enough, England would probably be in a better place if he had stayed there. I think like, you know, he would have been timing things for the world cup. He'd have brought a little bit of a chip on their shoulder or whatever. He would have got into their psyche as players. At the moment, those players don't have a psyche. You know, they you don't know what their identity is. You don't know what they believe in. They don't even look like they're winning the little battles, whereas they're trying to, but it's toothless because they're not winning any, and then they're celebrating all over the place. But I think if Eddie Jones had his own system in England, those little battles being celebrated would be getting under the skin of opposition, and we'd be talking about them a whole lot differently. I think he had a. I do think Eddie Jones is a guy that can have a master plan and it come to fruition at the right time. And I think they made a massive mistake. There's probably a lot more going on now, but like he, I think they've made a mistake in hindsight that they don't seem to be in a very confident position going into it. And I think they'd have had, I think he'd have had players in a very comp- confident position going into that World Cup if he still had his way, you know? Yeah, I would say just 
it says it must say a lot, I'd say, about how bad the relationship was that they couldn't they couldn't just stick at it for another nine, ten months to get to a World Cup. Um, we're almost out of time, guys. Very finally, just even in a in, in a few quick words, um, South Africa absolutely hammering Wales at the weekend. Uh played some really, really nice rugby along the way. How much are you reading this Birch into South Africa being good versus Wales just not being at the races whatsoever? The Wales are crap, but um, South Africa are good. They're good. We we maybe they're the everyone's talking about Ireland, New Zealand, France. Um, but their game model, uh, the experience, the depth they have, yeah, maybe they're the ones we should be. They're the dark horse. Yeah, and guys like they've evolved from four years game plan wise. It's it's pretty clear to see at this stage, isn't it? They're also a side that you know they've got something up their sleeve. Like you know, yeah, you look at South Africa and I think they are coming good, but like. You'd be so naive to think, oh, they're not really at it. They love tournaments. They're they know it inside out. They're they're very strong for for going into this World Cup. It's it's hard to have them in the same pool because you know that you know they have stuff up their sleeve. Razzi is a genius. Uh, Jack is with him. Like they're they've got a way like Eddie Jones style of knowing tournaments inside out, knowing tactically how to get under people's skin, and they do it so well. You know, so I think they're they're so so dangerous. Yeah, they've a good uh, blend within their squad as well, don't they? Both in experience and youth, and they've got that power game, but they also have the backs to throw in the flashy game as well. So, look, it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be interesting to see whether we do see Pollard and Am come into that squad or what way it'll work. Obviously, they haven't officially named their squad, but Nina Barr said it would be cruel to drop someone that you named. So, I don't see that happening. They'll only probably come in if someone within that squad gets injured, but um, they probably would need... Pollard going forward into the latter stages of competition if they were going to win it again but um, yeah they're in a good spot but on the flip side of that Wales were really poor and it was a very mixed team from Wales where South Africa did go very strong yeah anyway that is where we'll draw a line for this weekend reminder Ireland and Samoa is this Saturday evening in Bayonne live on RT2 and RT player live radio coverage as well on RT Radio 1 Extra that's it from the RT Rugby podcast this week we will be back next Wednesday again. Johnny, Birch and Fiona, thanks a million for joining us.